Hello, welcome to the latest episode of Data Unchained. I'm your host, Molly Presley. Before we jump in and introduce today's guest, I'd like to tell you a little bit about what this podcast is focused on. Essentially, we're talking about how the paradigm for data access has changed. In today's decentralized world, getting data to remote workers, distributed applications, moving it around between data centers and cloud regions can be a real challenge. Data and Chain digs into both the challenges as well as the solutions that make data an asset as a global resource. Today's guest is Kevin Libwit. He's the CTO of Theogen. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Molly, for uh, the invite and having uh, me on this show. It's been really cool kind of digging into the podcast history, seeing the different wide range of guests you've had to speak on different topics, some of which is really specific to my world of genomics and bioinformatics, other of which cover things that are like really big ideas, like caught that episode with Roxanne and she had just ideas and experience that just unbelievable depth and breadth. So it's definitely (laughs) a privilege to be on this uh, and to be kind of that uh, part of that cohort of uh, interviewees on Data Unchained here. Awesome. Thanks. I don't know if you saw, probably the funnest one was da- was when we had Adam Savage on because he was making a sword in the background. And I so saw that. That was yeah. interesting. And then you have Roxanne talking about big global trends that affect humanity. It's, it is fun to have a, the breadth of conversation. You certainly have a cool job in being able to <laughs> kind of see the gamut of subjects that are all just in some way related to this conversation of data and access and and it's just wild to see how it kind of proliferates so many different industries. So as I said, very, very cool to be a part of this. Very cool. So tell me, um, before we talk about the company you work for, would you tell us a little bit about Kevin? Kind of how did you get to the role you're in today as CTO of a genomics company? Yeah, so my career started in pathogen genomics when I was studying at James Madison University over there in Virginia. Uh, and I was in a traditional microbiology laboratory where really our focus as a research group was looking at antimicrobial resistance and how sort of agricultural practices introduce these antibiotics into the ecosystem and tracking the way in which it's impacting microbial communities. And when I first started in the sciences, I was a bench scientist. You know, I was I had a lab coat. I was working with bacteria with my hands directly, and I was looking to see you know, how resistance was being expressed by these microorganisms. And as we were looking uh, deeper at this question, the sort of natural next question was, what's the genomic content behind these antimicrobial resistance that we were seeing? And so this was my first uh, experience looking at DNA sequencing and the bioinformatics to make sense of these data. So this was around 2014, 2015, when I got my master's degree and was first introduced to these concepts of microbial pathogen genomics and uh, bioinformatics in general. Yeah. So in in your work, has it been primarily lab related or did you make a shift over to technology and computers at some point in that, in that path? Oh, that's a great question. So I started at what we call the wet lab when I was actually running the experiments. I was in the laboratory growing up these bacteria. Uh, but then by nature of the questions we were asking, we were generating so much data I had to learn the dry lab techniques. I had to learn a little bit of bioinformatics, a little bit about programming so that uh, once we were able to generate these data, I had to find a means by which we can actually make sense of these data. 
And actually that right there was my shift and kind of became the sort of microcosm of my career in working with so many different laboratories who had built up those wet lab capabilities to generate these data. They all have the same problem that I had. How do I now implement the bioinformatics to make sense of these data? Makes sense. So um, just maybe for those who are not real familiar with the life sciences space, what is bioinformatics? Oh, yeah, great. So bioinformatics is really sort of this this uh, mix of a field in that we take a lot of the principles and approaches uh, from data science and computer science and apply those approaches and techniques that make sense of large biological data sets. I think there's maybe a number of different ways in which people uh, define bioinformatics, but I think that kind of captures it well. You know, we employ data science and computer science techniques to try to elucidate some insights from biological data. In my background, specifically in what we do with Theogen, is we're looking at big uh, data sets of pathogen genomic data. So DNA coming from infectious diseases like SARS-CoV-2, E. coli, salmonella, tuberculosis, etc. Okay. And so in that space, certainly, I think everyone's heard of most of those diseases and pathogens. Um, what is it that you are looking to solve at Theogen? What is the you know, kind of passion of your country, your company, and kind of the the are you coming up with drugs? Are you understanding how they reproduce? What is it that you guys are looking to f- uncover? Yeah, that's a great question. We're, what we're trying to do is answer that same question I was trying to ask when I was at my laboratory in JMU. Is there laboratories that are generating these data? How do they get the resources and infrastructure to make sense of these data in terms of implementing the bioinformatics? So. To, to kind of even go back to the narrative route I was starting on in terms of my career, right after I earned my master's degree at James Madison, it, kind of serendipitously, it was the same time where the whole U.S. public health infrastructure was turning to sequencing and bioinformatics for their pathogen surveillance network across the U.S. So 2016 is when I joined the Virginia State Public Health Laboratory. And they were one of the first state public health laboratories uh, to begin sequencing and performing bioinformatics for looking at uh, foodborne pathogens that are kind of being disseminated or spreading across uh, the state and trying to look at how genomic data can be used to better understand how it's spreading and why it's spreading so that it can eventually form action in terms of, you know, how do you stop the spread of these infectious diseases. And as I said, this was when the whole U.S. infrastructure was starting to make that transition. So I was really fortunate enough to be one of the first bioinformatics scientists at the state level. In fact, I was one of only four in the U.S. uh, state system. There was myself, uh, Joel Savinsky, who was at the Colorado State Public Health Laboratory, Sean Wang over there in Minnesota, and Kelly Okasin in Utah. And we had really specific challenges of of bioinformatics implementation. Um, There was not only the, the, the analytical capabilities in terms of lack of software to properly analyze these data, there was also the conversation of the appropriate compute infrastructure itself. You know, a lot of laboratorians, uh, they had maybe their desktop computers and were looking at assays that they can kind of uh, put into an Excel spreadsheet and almost uh, do their data science on a couple of Excel sheets. Whereas, you know, we were generating gigs of data, sometimes terabytes of data, and we needed the appropriate infrastructure to, to run the software even uh, to make sense of these things. And then beyond that was training the public health community. Uh, it was It's really a whole new language, it's a whole new lexicon of looking at uh, these types of data, these types of output, and making sense of these types of reports to properly inform what was going on. So 
in my career, I had that kind of front row seat in uh, at the Virginia State Public Health Lab of understanding what are the challenges, hurdles, and even solutions that allowed public health laboratories to kind of overcome these barriers. And in the beginning, it was really working with those four scientists specifically uh, to create a kind of community practice. We formed the State Public Health Bioinformatics Working Group, or Staff B, um, that really, over my time in Virginia, snowballed into a whole nationwide community where we had every pr- practitioners from every state public health laboratory trying to share these ideas of how do we get the analytical tools, how do we get the infrastructure, and then how do we uh, train the scientists to actually make sense of these data. And so uh, I was in the Virginia State Public Health Lab until about 2020, and I think it was actually 2018, 2019, uh, Joel Savinsky, who I mentioned was at the Colorado State Public Health Lab, you know, his ambitions as a practitioner sort of uh, superseded his, uh, his role at the state. So this is actually when he stepped out of his position in Colorado and started Theogen Genomics. Uh, and he started working with states uh, directly beyond just the Colorado State Public Health Lab to take a lot of those lessons we were learning and try to expedite uh, their implementation as more of a, in more of a sort of public-private partnership. And so I saw him kind of step out and, and make his move and, and start Theogen. And then in 2020, I left the Virginia State Public Health Laboratory and, um, and joined Joel. And in the beginning, it was just, uh, you know, trying to figure out with a lot of laboratories, we, we, we knew the utility of things like pathogen genomic data. As I said, you know, looking at things like foodborne infections and um, different hospital or healthcare associated infection control. And our small community understood the utility of pathogen genomics, and we were you know, very convinced that this is going to be a, the required technology to perform these kinds of, or uh, to support these types of investigations. Um, and then we thought, you know, maybe we had a 10, 20-year layout of how this technology gets implemented across, you know, different states and different countries around the world. Uh, but then in the face of COVID-19 response efforts, it became the only technology, it became the, mo- the premier technology for laboratories to really understand what was going on. So what we understood as a small community in terms of its utility and how it can transform public health, COVID-19, you know, so, many, so much more funding got put into the space to expedite that adoption. So uh, every U.S. public health laboratory um, quickly gained those capabilities to generate these data for uh, SARS-CoV-2 sequencing. And then uh, just this half step behind that, they needed the same capabilities uh, to perform the bioinformatics and make sense of these data. So that's really where a lot of our work in Theogen started. Uh, so 2020, 2021, or at least my work at Theogen started. 2020 is uh, when I joined, and it was Joel and I working with laboratories to set these uh, bioinformatics systems up. And um, now, you know, three years later, uh, we're a small team of uh, 16 scientists all over the world working with public health laboratories uh, through the global uh, community um, answering these same questions, not only for SARS-CoV-2, but also uh, other infectious uh, diseases of public health concern. So I think that the way data is shared has changed a lot. There's a lot of regulations, of course, around it. Yes. And then there's technology hurdles as well. But um, when you talk about sharing information across states with different groups, wh- where are the obstacles? Is it a technology problem of moving data from one place to another, or is it more policy level? Yes, and both <laughs> of those are, are very much true. Um, and you know, there's there's a huge need in, in ensuring a lot of these data get shared because 
you know, again, going back to sort of what the public learned through COVID-19, none of this is isolated to a specific government jurisdiction, right? Like things spread across borders. These pathogens know no borders. So we have to be able to have that global perspective of how these pathogens are spreading across jurisdictions. So there's been really huge efforts of uh, sustaining these internationally accessible databases um, with some of these critical pieces of information. So like a big push or or big effort was made um, or errors continuously being made for public health laboratories to be able to submit their data to these internationally accessible databases, uh, things like GISAID or NCBI, where you know information about the sequencing data itself can be shared, but also crucially important is uh, you know the metadata, the information about that sequencing data in terms of you know when it was collected, where it was collected, um, and, and other sort of vital information that give context to the uh, infectious disease investigations there. So um, the, the challenge there, as I said, it's sort of a yes and, but I think the, the, the way in which a lot of laboratories are addressing that is, is simply through education, you know, speaking with IT, speaking with the data uh, owners and speaking with the epidemiologists and other partners to understand what data will be shared and what data won't be shared um, through these different forums. And uh, it's it's been amazing too having in the face of COVID-19, sort of this global community come together to understand, you know, the, and, and communicate the critical importance of putting these data out there. So there's a lot more willingness um, uh, to share these data. But again, there's still those uh, apprehensions and, and challenges of the data that is allowed uh, to be made available there. Do you think that this will be limited to COVID-19 or God forbid the next pandemic, but there's there's many other public health issues going on. Is a lot of this infrastructure going to be used for other diseases as well? Absolutely, absolutely. And we're already seeing that because you know I think the way we approached um, the bioinformatics development. When I say we, not only Theogen but really throughout uh, the whole public health community. With that understanding that these technologies are going to be organism agnostic, and we're looking at DNA sequencing already, so there's already the capabilities. If you can sequence the DNA of SARS-CoV-2, you more or less have the capabilities to sequence the DNA or the genomes of multiple pathogens. And so, in turn, we wanted to make sure that the bioinformatics solutions were also organism agnostic or as organism agnostic as possible, so like you know, you're you're seeing a lot of adoption of just general infrastructure like uh, like cloud compute platforms, um, the use of interoperable software through like Docker containers and workflow managers to make even the bioinformatics uh, pipelines themselves uh, all that more distributable and ac- accessible um, to different laboratories. All of which are not in any way SARS-CoV-2 specific, but the, the general mm-hmm. principles there can be uh, quickly pivoted to things. Um, like the other pathogens we talked about. In fact, you know, we had a really close collaboration with the Massachusetts State Public Health Laboratory and the Grubal Lab over there at Yale University in the face of the uh, MPOX um, outbreak, where we were able to take a lot of those lessons learned from SARS-CoV-2 and from the wet lab side to the dry lab side, pivot it in the face of another emerging infectious disease. So the Yale University, or yeah, the Grubal Lab at Yale, they were able to develop the wet lab capabilities to sequence MPOX, and we were able to work with the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, as well as the Massachusetts State Public Health Laboratory, to make sure the bioinformatics capabilities that we had developed for SARS-CoV-2 could be, again, repurposed or, um, or pivoted towards MPOX sequencing and analysis. So who pays for all of this? 
it's, you know, a lot of public meets private kind of world. Um, you know, the infrastructure, the research, the collaboration, is that companies like your own or is there government funding? How does that go about? Sure. Nearly all of our work has been supported by uh, CDC funds that, that make it either directly that we're working directly with the CDC or that the funding that gets distributed to the states and then allocated um, to the different stakeholders to ensure that they have these kinds of capabilities and resources to perform this public health good. Um, and so like some of the offices at the CDC, for example, the uh, Office of Advanced Molecular Detection, currently head by uh, Duncan McCannell there, you know, they have a they've allocated a lot of funding and resources to ensure that the U.S. public health system has the sequencing capabilities as well as the bioinformatics capabilities to support these types of investigations. Because I think what we've seen uh, over the past, you know, maybe 10 years now is how much more powerful these data are relative to maybe traditional wet lab techniques of like molecular biology, pulse fail gel electrophoresis for uh, maybe the molecular biologists uh, that are listening in. Um, It's just orders of magnitude greater resolution um, to support these types of investigations. So that that urgency to shift into technology is certainly understood and well-funded, or at least, you know, uh, relatively speaking, uh, there's financial support coming from the federal government there. So what is the IT side of the data sharing? And when you look at the infrastructure you're using, is this all cloud-based? Are you hosting it in some kind of SaaS tools that have been designed for the industry? Yeah, no, that's a fantastic question. So a lot, and it's worth saying too, the the data or the resources we're making available for the community is for them to analyze their data. So we're not generating generating any data. The data analysis we're trying to put into the hands of the public health laboratories uh, that we're working with. So what the infrastructure journey looks like is the laboratories are able to generate these data and um, either they'll have some kind of cloud uh, storage themselves or Rarely, but sometimes they'll have some kind of local data storage of the genomic data itself. And then the conversation is, you know, where, how do you transfer it to the system uh, where actually the, the data processing is happening? And so we've been able to, to, to find a couple different solutions for this. In the public health community, um, one platform that's been really powerful is the Terra platform uh, that was developed and just currently sustained by the Broad Institute, um, some great collaborators over there. And it's all cloud-based. So currently something that's hosted on uh, GCP as well as Azure. Uh, but then the whole conversation is how do you get the uh, data that the laboratory has generated and then onto or made accessible to uh, the Terra platform itself. And then from the Terra platform, uh, there's this whole coordination of you know the, the actual applications or the bioinformatics pipelines that are stored in uh, something called DocStore. So there's this repository of uh, pipelines and workflows that we make available uh, that's also sort of linked to the GitHub repositories that we make available. Um, and then all that gets coordinated and orchestrated by Terra so that the laboratories themselves, they can access, uh, so rather they have access to the workflows, they have access to their own data to perform that analysis uh, all within this uh, Terra platform itself. Very cool. It seems that there's this trend, and certainly that's why we have this podcast, but um, of getting data out of a silo or an individual yes. human's machine or lab into the public domain, or not even public domain, but into a larger access group is accelerating science everywhere, um, whether it's how autonomous vehicles run and gain the data off the tractor driving around shooting weeds in a farm or, you know, your area of focus where it's 
genomics that if we can get more of the data out of the field and into analytics tools, we can make decisions so much faster. And it just seems like almost every industry, the story is the same, even though the example is a little bit different. Yeah, that's why, again, it's, it's really cool being a part of this kind of conversation with you, because I think whenever we're kind of head down doing our work, we feel as if bioinformatics and public health is so unique and the challenges are like so specific of how do I get the sequencing data from this laboratory into something like a Terra platform and then analyzing those with, you know, the necessary workflows and things like that. But exactly as you said, there's a lot of industries that are trying to solve this exact problem. So it's helpful to see the different ways in which um, other industry practitioners are are approaching this and, and the lessons learned along the way. Absolutely. So you, I think something very unique to your industry is the security parameters. And, you know, we all care about hackers and people maliciously getting access to data that shouldn't. But with all the regulations around privacy of medical data and that type of thing, I think your industry is even more regulated. Um, how, how difficult is that for you to get to data sharing when you have to worry about patient privacy? Oh, that, that's a huge concern. And so I should even clarify, when we're talking about a lot of cloud solutions, a lot of the materials or data that are being shared is uh, limited to that, which is not PHI. So the, the, a lot of the information, in fact, that gets um, uploaded to something like the Terra platform for analysis, you're really only looking at the genetic data and very low-level uh, met- metadata that wouldn't be necessarily classified as PII. So, you know, again, that becomes another conversation of the data transfer is, okay, now you've got the data in Terra, you, maybe you've done your bioinformatics analysis and you have these reports. How then do you marry that to the sensitive data that maybe housed in a different infrastructure? And so these are the conversations we're having with a lot of public health labs now is, you know, they have maybe designated secure environments to host this more sensitive metadata, but they need still the infrastructure like cloud compute to analyze the bioinformatics or the pathogen genomics data. So these are the conversations that happen. Then how then do we take the information or reports that uh, are being generated in Terra and then marrying that to the or, or transferring that or marrying that with the data um, that is a bit more sensitive there. So those are very, uh, very active conversations. And, you know, I think a lot of the technologies there, the solutions are there. Uh, but again, kind of getting back to what I was saying about even data sharing in general, a lot of this is education in, in letting laboratories know what data uh, what data is being shared, where, and how it can be ensure its data security and integrity throughout the way. And, and there's, yeah, there's a lot of very smart people working with the governments all over to, to try to answer exactly this problem. And yeah, we feel fortunate to be able to uh, be a part of that conversation because uh, that's what makes it really actionable. Is not just looking at the bioinformatics analysis for sort of an academic exercise, but how then do you uh, tie that with really the the patient information, the people who are actually being impacted by this so that, you know, the epidemiologists and departments of health can inform their action uh, more readily uh, to, you know, hopefully stop the spread of these kinds of diseases. Yeah, the mission's great. You know, we're talking a lot about, you know, some of the process. You, when you touch on metadata, um, you know, again, is a thing across many industries. I'm curious how do you create metadata in your space? Um, you know, like the movie and entertainment industry 10 years ago had people sitting and watching films and saying, oh, there's Brad Pitt at minute 54, and he's, you know, in a car that crashed in minute 56, and they would manually create metadata. And they've moved yeah. to automation of how to do that with 
AI engines. How does it work in the genomics field when you're thinking about low level versus high level and what's coming off of a sequencer? I think it's interesting to know how that happens. Yeah, so a lot of that is generated and taken into account um, and collected by the Departments of Health themselves. So there's a lot of epidemiologists that are in the field contacting uh, different hospital systems or even patients directly to collect these metadata about the samples. And this is where you get the most valuable insight um, into each individual sample. So there's still very much a manual component of uh, epidemiologists out there doing the contact tracing um, and gaining and then curating a lot of these metadata. And so those become like some of the most uh, important information. There's certainly a shortage maybe of epidemiologists who are able to do this really detail-oriented work of collecting these metadata for each of these samples. And there's a lot of efforts to um, understand how to direct epidemiology efforts, right? So that's where a lot of the uh, bioinformatics works come into play. Can we uh, in some way identify maybe the putative outbreaks or the, suger- or the plausible outbreaks that can kind of narrow the scope uh, for the epidemiologists who are, who are then going to the field to collect uh, more information or epidemiological information about these samples and about the patients themselves. Interesting. Very cool. So um, when we look at what's next, what are you working on now? How do you see 23 kind of unfolding and the next couple of years? Yeah, so there's a couple of different things, right? You know, over the past three years, it's been a huge focus on public health laboratories uh, because that's, you know, as I said throughout my career background, that's where I came from. And, and that's where I understand the problems most intimately is working with a lot of public health laboratories to set up these kinds of infrastructure. I know the laboratories are generating these data and we kind of understand the steps it takes to get them the, the solutions to make sense of these data. And then as you're seeing public health kind of grow in scope, it's it's then uh, kind of rubbing elbows with different, uh, different but related uh, industries in that, you know, a lot of public health laboratories are now also working with um, cl- uh, clinical providers and maybe even the food safety side. So for us, that's kind of where we're moving now too, is working with uh, the other stakeholders of these same types of data, um, looking at uh, how on the clinical side of things, how can these reports be most useful, be made most useful for uh, the practitioners in terms of their diagnostic or medical decision-making. And then also on the food safety side, you know, this a whole conversation of outbreak uh, investigations and infection control. This is obviously of paramount uh, importance for the food manufacturing industry as well. So that's what we're looking at is now, you know, very clearly uh, an aim in public health. And we, we, we came from that field, and this is kind of where a lot of our focus is. The pathogenomics in public health is impacting a lot of those other industries as well in terms of uh, the clinical space and food safety. So these were a lot of our conversations and focuses uh, turning towards. Cool. So I think for a little bit of a call to action for those listening who'd like to learn more, and also I think it's something to be proud of. I know you were just recently published and um, talking about microbial genomics, and maybe talk a little bit about that paper, and we'll add a link to it for the show notes here for anybody who wants to check it out. I actually have it up in front of me right now. Um, But maybe just share a little bit about that. I think COVID is near and dear to all of us, and we're familiar with it, and super cool to speak to somebody who's been such a part of this. Yeah, certainly. So the paper you're talking about there, this is something that we just recently published in Microbial Genomics, and it's 
encompasses a lot of what I spoke about in terms of accelerating the implementation of bioinformatics in uh, the public health space. And, and we, we really talk about how this Terra platform that I mentioned helps to coordinate or it helps to meet a lot of the needs that are specific to public health in terms of getting uh, laboratories access to these open source software where they have scalable compute resources and, and, and enable some sort of standardized analysis uh, throughout the field. And in this, we, we highlight how just in short time, maybe two and a half years or so, um, the resources we made available have been uh, implemented in, in over 90 uh, public health laboratories around the world um, with millions of analyses that have taken place uh, for their SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, pathogens there. So in terms of call to action for for the listeners who might be interested in, in learning more about this, you know, definitely uh, link them to my paper there. There's also other incredible groups that we've had an opportunity to work with, including uh, the Public Health Alliance for Genomic Epidemiology, something called FAGE. Um, and I've also mentioned things like Staff B, the State Public Health Bioinformatics Working Group, uh, all of whom are doing great work to uh, really define the critical challenges and then uh, highlight the solutions to bioinformatics implementation in public health. I think those are great places to start uh, to to be made aware of where this space is and how it's really impacting public health uh, at large. Awesome. Kevin, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Really interesting topic, and it's been a pleasure and um, fun time recording with you. Thank you, Molly. I appreciate it. Again, yeah, thanks to your team for reaching out and, and coordinating this. is really a, a great podcast to be a part of. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Data Unchained, powered by Hammerspace. To learn more, visit hammerspace.com. If you have a guest you would like to hear on the show, email me at molly at hammerspace.com. Oh, 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 o